Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Thea is off travelling in search of the perfect pineapple-based pizza. Which reminds me, at the weekends I spend most of my time in supermarkets, obviously, and I saw something called, Lucy Dallas, a pulled jackfruit barbecue pizza for vegans. And as a no-nonsense northerner, weaned on bread and dripping as i'm sure you were i can't believe you have any truck with that of course i was weaned on bread and dripping i've got a number of i've got a, a lot of caveats with that whole that sentence okay why do you spend most of your time in supermarkets i think it's because because I, I, I have three children and one of them is a baby who i so I have to children go walk i know i know but they have a really like nice life in every other respect so i feel i've got so to penalize them, them. Go. okay yeah we live near to a supermarket as well so i feel like i'm often going out to get things I've forgotten okay. and because little baby Phoebe's 15 months old you just need to leave the house sort of yes, every two I know, hours I understand that and, I, understand. I didn't know if it was your leisure activity or no. I mean I'm, I'm not judging no. um, pulled jackfruit barbecue pizza I've got no problem with a jackfruit Have you, I've never or it being pulled it. I don't understand the, why would you barbecue a pizza no it's barbecue my... sauce Oh, I see. I thought, I mean, I I thought think, you were supposed to barbecue the no, pizza. I think Thea would. I think Thea would would literally have some sort of <laughs> I mean, I, anaphylactic shock. I'd rather. I might rather have a normal yeah. pizza, but that's not. Can I say because I was weaned on dripping? Were you though? No. Have you had bread and dripping in your life? Uh, I did. I have had. I'm it, from I the Midlands, and I had it. You must have had it. Yeah. What northerner are you? It's not. It's not a vegan meal. No. <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination anyway if you want to get a cheap subscription to the tls where we don't talk that much about jackfruit or dripping uh, if you live in the usa or canada go to podcast.the-tls.com if you live anywhere else including the uk then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19 it's five pounds or dollars for five issues this week marks the anniversary of the beginning of the end of the cold war and we've devoted much of the tls to considering various aspects of all that on this week's show, Sarah Lonsdale has been reviewing a book about the writers who took up Cold War causes because they would have been killed if they didn't, because they wanted to, or because they were being manipulated into it without their knowledge. She will tell us more about all that. Jane Yeager has been looking at punk rock in East Germany, which was a key feature in the eventually successful opposition to the government. 
After all, the very existence of punks meant that not everyone was the same in their appreciation of the communist state. Nothing says resistance like shouty people with bad hair and homemade piercings. Plus, we'll have a love-in about Le Carre with Robert Potts, our managing editor, who can talk us through the work of that Cold War great. Cold War is traditionally placed in the second half of the 20th century, but as Sarah Lonsdale notes this week, you could start a bit earlier and say that the cultural war of ideas had been secretly waged since at least 1919. That was when the Communist International or Comintern was created, when the world began to divide into two opposing sides, and when artists and writers began to be co-opted in the struggle. Sarah has reviewed Duncan White's vast Cold Warriors, writers who waged the literary Cold War, calling it a monumental effort at telling the story of how novelists, spy agencies, activists and journalists, collaborators and honest brokers danced a complex interwoven gavotte throughout this fraught age. It's a tale of the weaponization of storytelling in the service of propaganda. Some of it honourable, some of it less so. Sarah's in the studio with us now to tell the tale. Sarah, hello. Hello there. Um, should we start the, the this, this idea in 1919, the common turn seems to start the process, or at least the process in, in this context, of art being used for politics. Is that is that fair, do you think? Yes. So the Comintern stole a march, really, on Western intelligence agencies in establishing a series of front organisations, um, theatres, publishers, even travel agencies. So there was Intourist, which organised travels to Moscow for left-leaning writers to try and show them the joys of uh, collectivisation. And they really were about 20, 30 years ahead of the CIA and the British, who were a little amateurish in getting going on that. I want to talk about the amateurishness because this has a great anecdote in it, your piece. Somerset Maugham being sent to Moscow, in inverted commas, to stop the communist revolution. <laughs> Is that really true that they said... Well, we- that's that's what Somerset Maugham said in his memoir. And actually, it does ring true in, in that being a newspaper foreign correspondent was a classic cover yeah. uh, for spies. And of course, in those days, there was no training, really. People would just go down the clubs and talk to their fellow writers and say, listen, old chap, would you yeah. like to go to Moscow? Old chap and, being the uh, operative yes, word, indeed. I would have thought. In this chat, context. Yeah. It is yes. amazing how anything got done. We, we reviewed a book um, which I'd read about how Britain lured America into the Second World War. And it basically involved asking a well brought up chap to go over to America with a bit of money and see what he could do. And there's a kind of amateurishness about the whole. I kind of wonder how anything ever got done if your idea of covert anti-espionage is to send Somerset Maugham to Moscow to stop a revolution. It doesn't feel very sophisticated, does it? Well, it clearly wasn't successful. Hadn't had the right training. But it did produce, of course, a series of wonderful short stories. Yeah. The Ashenden series, which I think Ian Fleming probably borrowed a few uh, of Ashenden's characteristics of, including liking to drink uh, dry martinis. Oh, really? Oh, I see. And you make the point that a lot of British authors... Maugham being one, but Graham Greene in Fleming were spies. So do spies make good storytellers or do storytellers make good spies? I think uh, I think it's a mixture of both. They're both engaged in making up stories, in 
uncovering the secrets of the human heart and in, in betraying people's emotions, leading people down the garden path and in making sense of lots of disparate uh, leads which have to turn into a, a, a honed narrative in the end. So I think there is a lot of uh, similarity in the two professions and journalism, of course. A, a lot of journalists were spies as well as novelists. Yeah. I wonder if the, the, it seems to me that the, particularly the successful storytellers were not necessarily very good spies. They kind of did a year or two and, yes. and it was actually very good material for them, but they didn't, as you say, stop the revolution or no. d- do anything particularly. They they traded on it for a long time. Yes, absolutely. And I think your classic case there is Graham Greene, who, in my view, is probably the best Cold War novelist uh, from Britain, I would say. Um, We're going to talk about Le Carre later, but, but, yes. but there's an argument about Le Carre as well, well who's also a spy. Yes. So, I mean, the spy who came in from the cold, Le Carre's novel, I think probably in, just in terms of sheer edge of your seat Cold War stuff. I mean, it, it was like when I read that ending and realised what was going on, it was like I was being ambushed. Yeah. by a book, which mm. never happened before. Whereas I think Graham Greene, just in his sheer range of those rather shabby, untrustworthy, shady characters hiding in the emotional shadows, he got so much. I mean, he was only working for SIS for a couple of years, but uh, he got an awful lot out of there. Many, many novels. You can see traces of his work uh, as a spy. We talk about sort of the amateurishness of this. How much do you think... When people were sent to to Moscow or by these French organisations, when it was paid for, when British left-leaning intellectuals were seeing the joys of collectivisation, how much was there a willful blindness to what else was going on? Because it feels like there was a reckoning in the 50s when people finally had to say gulags existed, Stalin was murdering people. Was there a, was there a gradual realisation? Was there willful ignorance, do you think? I think there must have been, particularly by the 1930s. I mean... Actually, Malcolm Muggeridge, who was also another SIS man, um, he went to uh, Moscow in the 30s and actually was excoriating about these left-leaning journalists and novelists who were given these tours of of Russia and they they went past uh, stations full of starving peasants begging for orange peels. One of the journalists on his party threw out an orange peel and it was... was, uh, seized upon by these peasants who had nothing to eat at all. So they must have seen what was going on and must have, as you say, turned a blind eye to some extent. Because Orwell, when he wrote, when he handed in Animal Farm to T.S. Eliot at Faber, T.S. Eliot refused to publish it on the grounds, this was in now 1940s, and, and effectively Stalin was an ally, and so he didn't want to to rock the boat. And so Animal Farm wasn't published by Faber because Eliot basically said the politics of it are a bit... Or a bit dodgy. He's on our side at the moment. He's on our side. I think. I think in my, uh, as, as far as I know, I think in France it was even later than that because there were quite a lot of French intellectuals, weren't there, and writers who were going later than the thirties yes. and who were still saying, "No, it's fine. It's all fine." And, and a lot of that didn't come out till late fifties, early sixties, maybe. Weren't that um, that they were being shown the kind of, as you say, the uh, official version of it and saying. Yes, it's all okay. Yes, of course. Uh, And there was also willful blindness, of course, on the other side. So White is very interesting on Stephen Spender, 
who was editor of Encounter and who apparently, when it was all revealed that Encounter was part funded by a CIA front organisation, was horrified and devastated. But but White is actually quite interesting and and has dug up two examples of where slightly pro-communist articles were spiked by other members of the editorial team. Mm. And he says, you know, really? Does Spender really not know where the money's coming from? So I I think, you know, that happened on both sides. How maligned was the CIA's influence on on a magazine like Encounter? Is there any way of writing that they're investing in a magazine that may have had broad propaganda aims but wasn't necessarily solely propaganda. I mean, how negative a view of Encounter should we have? I don't think that that negative, actually. Uh, I mean, in fact, uh, I I was reading it uh, for a long time before I actually read about the fact that it was uh, from CIA money and, and uh, really, uh, really enjoyed it and was really impressed by the quality of some of the articles. Um, now, we know that um, occasionally some good ideas from the editorial board were passed on to the editors to commission slightly pro-American articles and ditto slightly pro-Soviet articles were suppressed on a couple of occasions. But generally speaking, it was very impressive magazine. Actually, it wasn't at all obvious, was it? It wasn't. It wasn't that everybody knew. Yes, by and, any means. And some of the things it did. So it published some early Solzhenitsyn short stories. Solzhenitsyn was a, a critic of the Soviet regime, having spent many years in the Gulag. But it was also excellent writing. So you need to ask what the balance was. There. And also, there is an argument. I mean, maybe moral equivalence is dangerous, but fronting a, a cultural magazine for mild propaganda purposes versus a regime that was, and as Solzhenitsyn puts it, you know, destroying the living memory of the nation by effectively, if you disagreed with the regime, you were sent to a gulag or murdered. Um, yes. I mean, are we? Is it, is it just very Western biased of me to think, well, in the great scheme of things, CIA supporting encounter or... I think in terms of artistic endeavours, you're right. I mean... The CIA didn't just do that, of course. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, true. They did a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. I think they didn't. They try and assassinate Castro with an exploding cigar. Several hundred yeah, times with an exploding cigar. <laughs> I mean, the problem with the CIA stuff because I've read a lot of, of CIA novels, and you think, oh my god, they didn't do that, did they? And then when that stuff was all declassified, and and you saw what they did do, I mean, it really is. They did try and use LSD. They were going to do LSD to to um, they drop it into Cuba, so people thought Jesus was arriving uh, and stuff like. That. They did actually do that, and they did it. They did one experiment with LSD, where they gave it to some government employee without telling him that he was taking LSD, and he walked out of a window. Yes, and, I and, and, uh, and then after a bit, they went, maybe we'll go easy on the LSD. Uh, on the LSD. So I mean, none of this is necessarily um, purist, is it uh, at all? I guess. Is it very male? Sarah, is this a world? Is this a world? I think every person we've mentioned thus far yes. is a man, um, and that's part of my criticism of White's book. There are a couple of women he mentions. He mentions the American novelist Mary McCarthy, yeah. and he also mentions the Russian poet Anna Akhmatova, and a couple of minor roles from other women. But that's about as far as it goes. I think. There were certainly women writers and activists who were working very hard in this area. I mean, I mentioned Muriel Rukeyser, the American poet, at the beginning of the review, just to try and sort of set the record straight a little bit. I think, as always in in these areas, women's memoirs and women's lives 
are harder to unpick and uncover. And I think a lot of the time, because White is using um, biographies and published memoirs here, it is harder to find the women's work. You have to work work at unravelling it. And presumably the nature of the culture was they didn't send a, a female foreign correspondent, they sent Somerset Moore. So, so an awful lot of the patriarchal influence would have been happening at the time, not just as we're trying to unpick it. Yes, certainly lots of foreign correspondents were men. There were, there were women. Sheila Grant Duff was uh, a, a woman correspondent working for the Observer in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, and she actually, rather like Arthur Kessler, went to Spain um, and was um, doing some spy work on behalf of um, the Republic. Um, and she was extraordinarily brave, went off to Spain on her own and ended up climbing into the American consul in Malaga's garden to try and get an interview with him, but only not having realised that um, Franco had just taken Malaga and all the officers that the American consul was entertaining were actually Spanish and not, not American. Oh, so th- there are there are, there were women. Uh, they were always outsiders, though. I think you can say that. Mm. One of the Mitfords went to uh, to went to, I to Spain. Going to say yeah, well, she ran away. Decker, yeah. and, and she goes. She ends up in America yes. as a muckraking journalist, but, but she starts but off. And they Spain. sent Nancy to try and get her back, um, and and she sort of tricked her and said, oh, just come with us, we're just going to have... The-. She was on a boat, I think this is right, and they said, oh, we haven't seen you for ages, just come and have tea with us on this lovely boat, we're just going to say hello, and then we'll let you go. And they were going to whisk her off. Um, yes. And and in fact, she did do a bit of... Jessica did a bit of, not exactly reporting, but she wrote about it later, Yes, she, she did, and she, yeah. and she But there did. is a whiff of poshness in a lot of this, isn't it? When you read about spy spying generally of that period, it's there's a sort of... The, the public school kind yes. of bo- schoolboy features quite heavily, and you know it's not that surprising that I think Mitford went with Churchill's nephew was the person yeah. she eloped yeah. with, Romilly, I want to say something like Romilly, yeah. yeah. Um, so is there a feeling of this sort of there's a certain class of people that we're often oh, talking about? Absolutely. Here? I mean, you were uh, you probably went to Oxford or Cambridge. You probably went to public school, and um, your parents were probably very well connected. And um, actually, White makes a very good point about that, particularly about the British spies in that you know they did very good work and worked very very hard in the 1940s and 50s they were working to protect an idea of England that they had which was kind of pre second world war um view of England that was very different from England of the 1950s yeah sort of stratified world where, where they had a place yes it is a good read, though. Yeah, and you've you, and your piece is lovely, and it's. I mean, there's. I feel that we could carry on talking about the various stories that that, that come out of it for a long time, but we have to leave it there. Uh, Sarah Lonsdale, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Let's have a little pop quiz. Fingers on buzzers. Who recognises this song? Rocking away in the studio here. That was... Uh, oh, I was headbanging a bit there. You were a little yeah, bit. Yeah. That was impressive. No, thank you. That was Prügelknaben, uh, or Whipping Boys, by Schleimkeim, or Slime Germ. A rough translation. Top marks, if you got it. I, I, I think I, I'm prepared to bet that not a single listener of this podcast got that. I think maybe not, because yeah. the reason they wouldn't is because Schleimkeim were a punk band from the 80s living in East Germany um, in the DDR. Um, it turns out that novelists and journalists were not the only cultural figures waging the Cold War. There was a DIY movement going on, initiated by Western punk and specifically the Sex Pistols, but which had very serious political and social significance and real danger attached to it. Uh, Jane Yeager has written about it for us this week in her review of Burning Down the House, H-A-U-S. Good joke. By, uh, by Tim Moore. Jane, many thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I said that the punk movement was set off by the Sex Pistols and specifically it's, it was by, in fact, one person who heard them. Can you tell us about that and, and what happened to her? Yeah, so um, it was not easy to hear punk in the, in the DDR um, because the radio was heavily censored, all media were heavily censored, but in most parts of the country, you could still get Western radio stations illegally. The first known punk in East Berlin, uh, according to the book, was a 15-year-old girl named Britta, who in the summer of 1977 heard the song Pretty Vacant on a Western radio station. And she also, through uh, friends or relatives in the West, had access to a smuggled West German music magazine and saw pictures of the Sex Pistols. And... um, she felt very inspired and spoken to. And just as one person on her own uh, sort of had a conversion experience and, and became a punk, which started with putting together a punk look. And this was really DIY on a completely different level um, than in the West. She just sort of uh, from household goods figured out this look on her own. The impression the book gives is that around the same time, there were probably a few other, you know, teens scattered around the DDR doing the same thing. And then within a few more years, they had found um, places to gather together. And then after that, 
uh, came bands and then concerts. Yeah. And did that mean they they comprised a threat? I mean, one of the claims in, in the book that the German government regarded it as the number one threat, and the idea of a sort of a fifteen year old girl listening to the Sex Pistols and creating a look with a with a um, chain of a toilet plunger. Classic. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, being you know enemy number one. It, it sounds kind of implausible at one level. Well. Um, yeah, it does. <laughs> but, um, you know, the East German state always took uh, youth culture very seriously as uh, an issue that was sort of existential for their future. And they very aggressively monitored every and controlled everything about youth culture because they saw any opposition arising out of it as very dangerous. And punk from very early on came in for a very heavy repression just because it was something that was so visible compared to you know, other forms of dissonance. It wasn't the first dissident or oppositional movement in the DDR. But one point that the author makes is that if you're an artist or writer or political activist, you could be at a protest one day and, and you're a threat in that moment. Um, but it is possible for you the next day when you're walking down the street and or at your job to just look like an ordinary citizen and there's nothing about your appearance or your presence at that time that poses a threat. But because of this sort of very apparent like visual aspect of being a punk, it meant that you are visibly in opposition yeah. to the normal society. And every moment when you're like visible in public, there's no turning it off. And I think that was something that the state immediately, probably, you know, correctly seized upon as threatening to it. Because to my mind, punk, because of how old I am, it just seems really naff. But, uh, but it probably wasn't, I mean, I imagine, was it not NAF? Was no, it, was, I, think was, in the, I think, I mean, it's, this is obviously a much more serious version of what happens everywhere else. But when it first came, people were, I think people in Britain were pretty awful to punks because they just couldn't understand them at all. And, 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 and as James is saying, it says in the book that if that's how you look all the time, then you are a constant, it's a constant screw you, I'll say the polite version, to the rest of society. And you're a constant target. But presumably in the DDR, much more so because they got beaten, didn't they, Jane? And they got arrested and they got jailed and things. Yes. One of the ways it's a complicated story is that the Stasi and the, the police in general did not succeed in stamping out the movement because it had this, this way of being, because of how sort of decentralized it was and, and the ways it spread, by the time they would crack down on any given band or scene, it would have spread beyond them and there'd be other people starting their own punk scene. So they didn't squelch it, but they very successfully um, repressed and, and broke up any individual band or any individual punks that sort of came within their sights. They, people were arrested, interrogated, sent to prison, um, expatriated to West Germany in exchange for hard currency. They succeeded in planting informants within a lot of the bands. And even where they didn't succeed in doing that, they had ways of making it appear to the band that there was an informant among them to sort of um, instill paranoia, to instill distrust. And that led to several bands breaking up too. Mm, they were worried. Their constant worry was that they wanted to be part of the West or they wanted to reunify Germany. They wanted all the consumerist stuff. But that's not what the punks wanted was it because they were anti-capitalist they were they were good sex pistols fans they were anarchists 
Yeah, actually, the one of the ways that the government tried to frame them was saying that they were, um, this was something from the West, it was imported from the West, they were just imitating the West. But that, yeah, you're right, that was not the case at all. They did not look to the West as far as what they, you know, a lot of the music they got was literally smuggled in from the West. But uh, as far as like the society that they wanted to build, they wanted a sort of anarchist socialism. They wanted a better East Germany. They wanted to build something new, um, sort of from scratch. They did not want to... um, they did not look fondly to capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lucy, can we hear another song? I want to hear, another, I want, I want to hear some more. Yes, because because you love DDR punk from the eighties. Well, the one I love Schleimkeim. <laughs> we, we can hear a bit more Schleimkeim because I was going to say the the first one we heard was fairly recognisable as punk, but there were other things, scar things that came in, and also um, interesting, thoughtful lyrics. And there's this one called Geldshine, which is about money which is, again is the anti-capitalist thing, yeah. um, which is a bit like Scar, but it's also got a sort of umpar thing, which is like German folk music, which is traditionally very conservative. I would have to hear so, a bit. So, yeah, let's hear a bit of Geldschein. <laughs> I don't like that as much. In Ost Berlin. <laughs> it's interesting though, isn't it? Because it does sound like Scar. And do you see what I mean about the, 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 the bass line? The umpa the... umpa. What do you think, James? Do you like that? Um, yeah, I, um, I couldn't really... Um, make out the lyrics that much but yeah it is a, it is a bit oompa oompa in the sound yeah. yeah and it's actually I think the lyrics are about how the movement of money and it's quite a sophisticated anti-capitalist sentiment I would have thought um, Jane can you tell us um, about the, 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 the rather unlikely allies that the punks found that I think over we would never guess yeah um, I found this part of the story so interesting Um the church, the Lutheran church, was a really important part of this story because the punks would never have gotten to play any concerts in the DDR if it weren't for the church offering them, first of all, space to hang out once they got banned from meeting in public spaces, um, which the church was able to do because it had certain freedoms that no other organization had, and this is how it became sort of a center of dissident movements in general. But then they also um, hosted the first punk concerts, and the sounds like quite uh, an unlikely alliance. Um, and in the history of the of the DDR, especially at this time, you do often find the church at the center of, or at least involved in a, a lot of things that have to do with the opposition. Um, and I guess in that sense, it's not surprising. But what I found surprising is that there seemed to be a sense in this history of a really, something, a deeper and genuine affinity between these dissident ministers whose churches hosted the punks and, and, and put on these first concerts and the East German punk movement where they really saw themselves as having a lot of things, though certainly mm. not everything, in common. Well, maybe, maybe Jesus was the original punk. 
discuss. There, there's, very, there's, a, there's an interpretation yeah. you can put on that. They're ministering to their community. Well, Jane, it's, it's filled with great stories. Yeah. And I'd like to think that we've introduced a bit of music to people that they've not previously heard. Although, if anyone has heard that, do let us know. People are saying, of course, Schleim Keim. Of course it was. They were playing Prügelknab, but of course it was of that. Of course they were. Uh, you know, I, had, I, I don't think I had heard those particular songs before, but while I was working on the piece, I did look around on YouTube, and there are quite a few um, songs and even, you know, videos of mm. the... Um, of East German punk bands from well, the 80s, if ha- one is interested in and finding I, and them. And I hope people will now be interested. Uh, Jane Yeager, <laughs> yeah. thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So I associate childhood reading with black coffee and spy books, the former which I expended some time and energy in making myself like, because characters in the latter seem mostly to live off it. I still regularly consume both, of course, and the books of John le Carre have lingered long in my imagination. Picking them up, as Mick Heron mentions in the TLS this week, often re-triggers the emotions they provoke the first time. Emotions allied to the feelings of being young. Heron, himself a very fine writer of spy books, has written a lovely essay on his relationship with Le Carre, who is surely in the conversation for being one of Britain's greatest living novelists. Question. Le Carre's latest novel, Agent Running in the Field, a tale of Russia and Brexit Britain, is also reviewed in this week's TLS by Ian Thompson, who says that the author has lost little of his gift for creating big brother atmospherics and pages of taut dialogue. So we thought we'd consider the career of Le Carre with Robert Potts, who is a Le Carre fan of good standing. Hello, Robert. Hello. So I sort of blithely talked about the greatness of Le Carre. And has he broken out of the ghetto of being just a, a spy genre writer? Do you think he is a sort of recognisably big major figure? I don't think he's broken out of the ghetto of spy writing because all of his novels, bar one, are spy novels. But I do think he's uh, a great writer in the way that Stephen King in horror is great. Yeah. Or James Elroy as a thriller because they have a style that's very, very distinctive and incredibly effective as much so as any literary writer. Yeah. I quite agree. I don't think you need... There, there isn't a ghetto. He's just a great writer and he happens to write about spy things. So I, I wonder whether... It, it, when we've done things in the paper, though, novelists you're most excited about, we did that, the new Elizabethans thing. I'm just wondering whether people wouldn't necessarily say Le Carre, even though they might think of him as the writer they were most looking forward to reading. I'm just struck by the fact that he is a major literary figure still writing, and he's often not described as that. He's just like, here's another spy thriller by Le Carre. I wonder about that. I wonder if it's got to the position where he's of sufficient grandeur for him not to be involved in these discussions. Yeah, it's normally prob- about up-and-coming people, because Le Carre's uh, A Spy Came In From The Cold, that was a bestseller, and that really made his reputation back in the 60s. Yeah. And ever since, it's been, oh, there's a new Le Carre. You get excited. And you better and go you, get it. Yeah. Um, is it atmospherics, or is it good at the level of the sentence? It's definitely good at the level of the sentence. I've been looking over them again, and what he does is... The descriptions, they're very, very taut. They're quite witty. Sometimes they're quite catty. And they're analytic, and they are like little reports that some agent might file of their target. This is how they dress, this is their weakness. Uh, and they're very, very deftly done. And the other thing he does is he rolls between a kind of omniscient third-person narration and then he lets the uh, thoughts and feelings of whichever character is at the forefront of that point seep into that style. And yeah. it's very, very nicely done. That's what Hilary Mantel does, and she's a literary writer. Exactly. <laughs> if it wasn't for the spying... <laughs> Indeed. It's also, from what I remember, it's very spare. There's nothing flabby there, is That's there? exactly right. It's very, very lean 
economical I found um, the Honourable Schoolboy is weirdly long because they tend not to be that long his, his Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy I reread recently and it there is a certain there is a very tautness to it isn't it it's not it's not over long it's not you get a feeling that some spy novels we might talk about other spy novels later they're sort of bulked out a bit they tend to be these big baggy monsters you know here's a doorstopper of a spy novel he didn't seem to write them that often they're not long, but they are not fast either. So in that sort of brevity, it's a perfectly decent sort of novel-length book, but very little happens, in a sense. That's the difference between this and a lot of thriller or spy genre um, books, is a lot of it's very, very slow. It's a build-up, it's a stakeout, it's research, it's teasing out the contradictions in somebody's story. Everything is done at the level of dialogue where, or a flicker of, of a facial expression and so on. People are looking very, very closely. There's often a duel going on and then somebody gives something away and that leads to everything else falling yeah. out. And then near the end there can be a moment of brief but shocking violence. It does erupt, but mm. it's not it's not in the foreground ever, the violence. And there's a kind of shabbiness, isn't there? There's a kind of... The, the whiff of... Mick Heron talks about this, and I, when I think of Le Carrier, I kind of think of rain-spattered streets and sort of slightly shabby, unclean cups of tea and coffee and a sort of... Britishness that is it lingers but it's not it's not proud and impressive is it there's a certain smallness to it definitely there's no glamour it's not no. like the Bond novels there's no cocktails and uh, smart clothes it's really it is shabby it's it, it does those those films those tv programs where they do it in complete sort of grey black and white 1970s dirty counters and unsatisfactory meals it's it's, it's all there it's, it's that side of seedy rundown Englishness but it's odd it's that thing because Mick Mick Heron says that um, he was quoting someone that when you're reading a carry, you're hearing the last beat of the secret English heart. And it's like what you were saying, they're defending something. And then you think, oh, look at what they're defending. <laughs> kind of horrible formica and cups of tea, but it's a, a sense of the right thing, goddammit. Yeah. I think this is absolutely crucial with Le Carre. This is where he reminds me of Rudyard Kipling, because um, he has a sense of Englishness as a, an ethos, as, as something of value, but beyond its institutions, and in fact, counter to the institutions. Yeah. So Ooh. mostly people are working against any of the organisations and institutions that ostensibly make up England or the state, but they're after something much more valuable. Yeah. There's a bit at the end of um, of Tinker Taylor where um, Peter Gwillem has discovered that Bill Hayden Hayden is the uh, is the mole. Uh, sorry about the spoilers. What? And um, uh, it's been out long enough. I think people are going to have to wear that. And he, he becomes very very angry and upset. And Le Carrier writes. Um, Hayden was more than his model. He was his inspiration, the torchbearer of a certain kind of antiquated romanticism, a notion of English calling, which, for the very reason that it was vague and understated and elusive, had made sense of his life until now. In that moment, Gwilym felt not merely betrayed, but orphaned. Yeah. Ah, so that's what they're... You That's get, what they were fighting You for. get that, actually, in John Buchan novels, which are thrillers, but, again, there's a sort of hankering after a value system of of England in, in the Richard Hannay books of a kind of a, a decency, a kind of yeomanry that, that must stand for something if anything is going to stand for something. But it's not what you see in novels, because what you see, especially in the institutions, is actually double-dealing... Mm. Um, well, well, how different not, are they, is the circus from what's going on in the KGB? They're They're broadly the same patterns of people aren't they that was the beauty of the cold war novels and he did that very deliberately that sort of ambivalence about the methods and the means and the ends and what people um values and what people could be bought off for and so on and he did do it very deliberately first of all in 
um, he said that with the uh, the spy came in from the colds, where the whole thing involves such layers of duplicity and betrayal. Um, very, very startlingly so. And Le Carre said afterwards that the, the Americans seemed to get the point of this much more than the British did, which is why he followed it up with um, Looking Glass War, where a, a group of spies, not the circus, but a sort of outmoded, failing institution still left over, still think they've got one big play to make, and they are all shabby incompetence on the way out, and they all get mopped up at the end, and somebody uh, loses that big time because they've forgotten the basics of, of their tradecraft that they've been taught all the way through the book because they've fallen in love with a girl or whatever, and the whole thing falls apart, and he said, this is satire. That was the, the point, to show that it isn't a glamorous world. It's yeah. just full of ordinary people who completely screw it up. Um, can you remember... Because Mick Harry, I said to mention that I remember being a child and reading the Carrier and drinking this sort of black coffee and being sort of very attracted to this sort of feeling. Of, and when I think of Le Carrier, I had this sort of Proustian moment. You can sort of, I can taste the black coffee and I can sort of see the rain against the window. Do you have the same associations, Robert, when you look back at your first time with Le Carrier? I started reading John Le Carre properly uh, in the early 1990s because of the poetry and criticism of Tom Paulin. Um, of course. Yes, yeah. and um, uh, Tom, Tom Paulin wrote this beautiful poem called Waftage, an irregular ode, uh, which does contain the lines, um, it was quiet in the circus, Bill Hayden wafted down a corridor. But the main thing is Tom Paulin's having this relationship with this girl and it ends very, very badly, and he's lazing around. He's very, very idle at this point. Um, his girlfriend is painting, so he goes, Most every day she'd paint in the loft above the stables while I wandered right through Le Carre. Murder of quality was where I started. And then a bit later, he talks about James Fenton in um, Saigon. He says, I thought about how James Fenton read Shakespeare in Saigon, got the complete works in dime paperbacks on the black market. And at that point, I conceived to myself, because you always found John the Carrier in a second-hand bookshop, I thought, I'm going to get the lot, but only if I can get them for 30 pence or less in a second-hand bookstore. And over the years, I managed to, to get the lot, until I caught up with him. And then after that, my shabby paperbacks, which yeah. are falling apart from second-handness and love, uh, become shiny hardbacks that I was given for birthdays and Christmas. Yeah. So, um, or you've stolen from the TLS book table. Uh, I couldn't possibly say yeah. either way. So I did steal one That's from a pub true. once, actually. Where they had, there was, you know, one of the pubs that has books on yeah. the shelves, mm. which are there for ornament rather than use. Quite and right. You've I got thought, to take them. I need single and single. I'm having that. Yeah, so, quite, um, quite right. My Jean Genet moment. So that is how I got into Le Carrier. And all I do remember is that over those years, there were two things. There was the thrill of the chase in the second-hand bookshops. But whenever I was reading them, I was never happier than I was reading John Le Carrier. Yeah. For three days or so, yeah. I would just be... I didn't want to do anything else. And I was lost there aren't that many it. authors like that. I mean, that's, that, that's right. a great joy in life, mm. isn't it? Yeah, it uh, is. Is he a man of the seventies, Bob? In your mind, you know, it's very much your period. I was a child. Yeah, then. Uh, but yeah. Do, you, do you do you associate? I mean, is he someone who reached his peak then because that was the height of the Cold War? And he was writing into the context of his own times, and then since then, he's still written very well, but he's not been quite of his time in, in the same way. I think. There are two things there. I think he never does anything that is better than Tinker Taylor and Smiley's People. Um, those two books of the trilogy are outstanding. And I think it is true that the further he gets away from his own practice as an agent from the sort of 50s and 60s, the more researched it becomes and yeah. the, less, uh, the less there is for him to grapple with. And so a lot of the post-1989 stuff 
after the, the, the end of the Cold War. Um, you can see that a lot of it is straight out of the newspapers and various scandals and so on. Um, not, not that it's not well done. So no. the, the Constant Gardener, that was a true pharmaceutical scandal and he brings it out beautifully. And then in the... Um, What's the one about the translate the mission song? There's that whole Equatorial Guinea coup that yeah. um, that we remember so fondly, and um, so he does it really, really well. But you don't feel it's got the same investment, and it doesn't have the same moral landscape, the the complexity, the balanced complexity. What you've got thereafter are real crooks, um, whether they're the arms dealers or the people in the British establishment who are supporting them or uh, the pharmaceutical companies, whatever it is, or the Americans ever since the, the war on terror, he's really gone quite hard in that direction. And they are obviously villains. And yeah. so the poor, tragic uh, figures who get caught up and, and very near the end, perhaps over um, a, a love affair or just incompetence, they just screw up that last detail and they always get blown by the end. Um, they're, they're the good guys. Can I just... Um nip in about that when you said before oh it's because they've fallen in love or they make a slip or because it's a love affair or you know uh, and Mick Heron makes the point that this also is a very male world I mean he's describing a very male world there's not many female characters with much agency are there no and he, he doesn't draw them well um, I think that's very fair to say I can't think of there's the little drummer girl isn't there yeah. Charlie was very very nicely done. And there's who's Connie Sachs. Connie well. Sachs. Yeah, is, she's the sort she's of. very smart, isn't she? Yeah, but you you get to her and she is she's brilliant. But by the stage you get to her, she's um, very very drunk and um, dying, I think, by the last novel. Yeah. And she's um, having a relationship with a young woman who had a nervous breakdown when Smiley was in charge of the circus. And yeah. uh, it's all very kind of it's, there's shambles, isn't it? They've got animals everywhere, and, yeah, and she's a, always. It's on an the old boys' club. He's writing about really, isn't yes. it? Yes. I mean, and that, but that is reality. Well, I it suspect was. as well. Is it still? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, don't know. know. And the worlds, the worlds he describes, they they are the the, the clubs of London and, and yeah. Piccadilly and St James or whatever. And then there's, um, you know, when he's doing the Russian oligarchs, um, they all gather together, and the women are there entirely as prostitutes, yeah. and it's it's unremittingly that. Um, um, okay, I want to end by favourite Don McCarry, and then any favourite spy fiction. I love spy fiction. I've got I've got three spy fiction but gone I don't know Le Carre as well as you Robert give me your if you could only read one Le Carre is it Tinker Taylor yes with Smiley's people a very close second yeah. but yes it definitely is Lucy I'm I'm pretty um, unversed in it I'm afraid have you, which have you read have you read Tinker I, Taylor no I think I've read The Spy Who Came In From The Cold yeah. and I've seen Tinker Taylor which I've seen the film not the, which, smart, not the Alec Guinness not the Alec Guinness no but I've seen the and the, that was one of the great Robert, that was one of the great TV portrayals, arguably ever, wasn't it? That you, people see Smiley as it's Guinness. hard not to. I mean, it, it really is. It was very effectively done, and that's the pitch that will always come into your your mind. And, and any spy fiction that you tell? I'm reading at the minute. Go on. Well, among other things, Len Dayton. I'm <laughs> very reading, very good classical French chef. I know he was, on. and he wrote a cookbook. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'm reading Game. <laughs> he did. Yeah. Game Set and Match. Have you ever read these? I never did Len Dayton. A lot of boys at my school. They're did, really good. Uh, did you do SSGB? He did SSGB, and actually, if you read the prose, they're very. There's a little bit of hard boiled in them, but they're beautifully written. Beautifully written, and Game Set and Match is set in. We're in the 80s. Cold War isn't down. The, the, ball, the wall isn't down yet, and it's another shabby marital breakdown, failed, growing fat spy trying to work out his way through this ambivalent world. It's very Le Carre, actually. Maybe slightly less high end, but it's still really good. I, I mean, I, I definitely. You, I think you should. You'd like it. 
Because now that you ask the question, I, realize I don't really read spy fiction apart from Le Carre. Yeah. He's the exception. The, 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 the exception I would make to that is I do remember enjoying Our Man in Havana by Graham Greene. Yeah. Well, we've talked about Graham Greene. Le Carre could almost uh, does a homage to yeah. um, with the Tale of Panama. It's, yeah. It's his... Uh, well, the ones I read, I've read more than once, Norman Mailer's great spy novel, Harlot's Ghost, which is, I think, 1,400 pages long, and it's a tale of the CIA. So it's great. And another tale of Celia is a book called The Company, which Mick Heron mentions actually in his book because uh, it's by Robert Little and it talks about the phrase walking back the cat. And the role of spies is to walk back the cat, which is to try and find the source of the leak to find who out the mole is. Are you walking back the cat to its bag? Because someone has let the cat out of the bag. I think you're walking back a cat which has wandered all over the place. So it is an incredibly torturous trying to walk back a cat. So oh, I, see but, I think it's, I think it's herding cats. Yeah. Somebody let it out, out of the bag. I thought I got the idea. I thought it was more like herding, reverse herding reverse cats. Reverse herding cats. Was, was, I mean, if you, the company, another giant novel. It's really good. It's really good. And interestingly, it has the idea of the barium meal which is where you give radioactive information to a series of sources and then you find out who reports it onwards. Wagasa Christie. Exactly, which is the method Colleen Rooney yes. did to identify Rebecca Vardy. <laughs> and some listeners who hear that will have no idea what I'm talking about. So I'll just say to you, Google Colleen Rooney, Surely Rebecca no Vardy. Oh, don't feel that you piece have of information. Robert Potts, what a great pleasure talking to you. Thank, Thank you very much indeed. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Robert Potts, to Jane Yeager and to Sarah Lonsdale. Lucy, are you back for one more week? I am, if you'll have me. Return. Yep. Hurrah. Do get subscribed to the TLS and get hold of this week's issue. All you might ever need to know about the Cold War, plus an awful lot more stuff, including the fat and great Australian poet Les Murray. Next week, the TLS launches a new website and redesign and the first from our brilliant new imprint, TLS Books. It's exciting. We'll begin with a book of essays by TLS writer, among other things, Virginia Woolf. And it's the anniversary of George Eliot's birth as well, so we'll talk about that. Great writer too. Do not miss it. Till then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.